And so given all that and kind of in context of, of that decision, the ultimate consequence, if truly found in their favor, kind of overwhelmingly would be to go back to and do an EIS, which would be devastating for the Artemis program. Um, and there would be a lot of very angry people, um, including a certain prickly billionaire who is not shy about sharing his opinion on things that don't go his way. Hi, everyone. I'm Larry Heron, and this is Talking Space. It's Wednesday, June 21st, and I'm joined tonight by Gene Mikulka. Greetings, Gene. Greetings, Larry. I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. Me too. And our guest today is Mr. Eric Resch. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Okay. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Good. Eric is an environmental engineer by training, correct? I am. Okay. And you've, you've had a career where you've worked both sides of the business, both on the private consulting side and the regulatory side of things. I, I have. Yep. I, I was a government employee as well as I've worked in industry for uh, almost 15 years now. And uh, you've had experience with preparing the environmental documents, the PEAs and the EISs involved with the Starship saga. You've also become somewhat of an internet famous personality in the world of space journalism. Uh, that's one way to put it. Yes. With with your investigations of the environmental permitting history of SpaceX's development of the Boca Chica, Texas Starbase facility, which has morphed over the years into the Starship production testing and launch facility, even though it started out, I think, as a Falcon 9 facility. Uh, Eric also has a Twitter feed that we've mentioned several times on this show where he's known as the ESG Hound. He's joining us today to give us some insight from his perspective as to how the lawsuit against the FAA regarding its oversight of SpaceX's Starship test launch might be resolved and maybe how long that might take. So, uh, Eric, I'll say it before you say it. Uh, You're not a lawyer and neither are we at Talking Space, but you do have some professional non-lawyer type experience in doing all the research field work and writing of those documents that I talked about as well as experience with what can happen when the findings in these documents are challenged in court. So uh, speaking of settling disputes, we all know a lawsuit was filed back on May 1st by a coalition of environmental and Native American groups against the FAA. And that lawsuit alleged uh, inadequate oversight and review of the PEA and alleged requirement for a full environmental impact statement etc., etc. The FAA found that there would be no significant impact on the environment based on the results of that environmental assessment, uh, and the lawsuit challenges that finding. We also know that SpaceX filed a document with the court to be included as a defendant in the case, as they felt that the FAA wouldn't adequately defend their interests. So, Eric, can you kind of pick things up from there? Is there... Yeah, yeah so... 
my my main contention and I this is the nice thing is I don't I don't claim to be a journalist and so I can be, you know, I I've been biased from the start and I'm not going to I'm not going to stop. I think there's, you know, from a strict reading of the law, I think there's really in my background and personal judgment, you know, um clouded and biased as it may be, is that it's a pretty tough sell. I've described this before, but it's always worth noting is that NEPA, when it first came around, the only environmental review mechanism was the EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement. And that was supposed to be a, you know, kind of catch-all document where we say if if we're going to use federal resources or we're going to cross state lines or it's going to have interstate impact or it's going to be funded or supported by the government in certain ways that we just have to get it all out there. And the EIS, you know, grew from the first EISs that came out were a couple dozen pages. And now, you know, you regularly see ones um, that are, you know, thousands and thousands of pages with, with appendices. And I think there's, there's some really good arguments that they've, you know, what you do is you disclose everything because the only way to enforce NEPA, um, and this is why people hate it, is that the only way to enforce it, there's no, there's no NEPA agency. EPA does not have direct oversight over it. So EPA is not the regulator for it. It's, it's through the courts. And so you end up settling all this stuff through the court system and that makes people mad. And I think I understand why. Um, but so these EISs became this burdensome document. And now when you're doing a project, you have to pencil down, right? You want to know what your project is and you're going to say, we're going to need at minimum three years, but let's count on at least six. Like that's, that's a good baseline for doing an EIS. In other words, for it to get through the whole review and approval process right. and revisions and all that stuff. Yes. And, and to be clear that the, the, the actual review and revisions are not, again, they're not done by the EPA. They're not done by the company that wants to develop there. They are the full responsibility of the sponsoring agency. Um, and, and that's why the FAA is being sued here. These documents became, there's a little bit, some of the pushback against it that we just need to just like basically pare them down to nothing. I think that's going backwards in a way that's not great, but there's some, there's, there's some good arguments that they've gotten too big, but in, in the past 20, 30 years in particular, they've gotten popular that there's a legal mechanism that was written into NEPA. And I can't tell you what year it was, but sometime after these things started ballooning, the federal government realized and lawmakers realized that these, these EISs would technically apply for a lot of projects that had kind of less significant impacts. And so they, there's a, a kind of a lower tier um, review that we call an environmental assessment. And that is that finding in order to be able to use that, you have to find that the project is not going to have a significant impact on the environment. And that word significant does have legal definitions. There are some individual and agency interpretations of it. There are some that are very clear, bright red lines that you can't, cross. And so when you talk about significance, I, I think I think if you look at a facility as it was originally permitted, and the original uh, Boca Chica facility was uh, an EIS, but the incremental increase from going from a handful of, you know, production Falcon 9 launches, a, a stable, much smaller launch vehicle to developing, testing, prototyping, you know, the largest rocket in human history, 
that increase, I think, forget the legal terms. I mean, that's, that's a, that's, I mean, like if we think about what rockets do and what goes into making them, it's, it, for me, it's a, it's pretty plain that, that it's a significant impact. And so my, my contention has been that they kind of, I don't want to accuse them of, you know, intentionally cheating, but, 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 but my, my observation has been that they, they kind of downplayed impacts in order to get this approval part across knowing that this is a less stringent review. And so what they settled on was uh, an EA, which means there's no significant impact, but they did what's called a mitigated FONSI. And the FONSI is the finding of no significant impact. That is the certification or approval document that goes along with an EA, a final EA document. And the mitigation part is kind of the key. So if you were going to build I don't know, a small, a very small solar farm or something that's really just like, that's technically subject to NEPA, but it's like a really a small, like a truly a small project, like a small building somewhere in, in, you know, forest service land or something like that. You wouldn't need to worry about the mitigated portion, but you have to mitigate it because what you're saying is the impacts would be significant, but we are taking XYZ precautions to prevent it from getting to a significant level. And that's kind of the test. And so what they did is they, they found kind of, it's basically like a middle ground kind of giving a wink that it could be major, but don't worry, we've got the protections in place. And there's pretty good arguments that there's, it's inadequate in a lot of ways. And I think the example I would give that's kind of almost farcical is that a lot of those mitigations that you see in SpaceX's are like, you shall donate money to this cause. And I don't know how that mitigates impact. And I think that's kind of one of the interesting arguments is that it's, you know, just, you know, you've got these other federal agencies that don't, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and the Department of Interior, they don't want, you know, they, they they want to protect their own territory and their own, you know, agency's mission. And so they're like, well, you know, there's the political pressure to get this through is so bad. We'll just take some, some funding, you know, as a, um, as a, you know, consolation prize, that's kind of, you know, how it looks, I guess I would say. And so the, the, the reason it's important and the reason I spent so much time discussing it is that when you're doing an EIS, a lot of the times you don't necessarily kitchen sink it, but you don't have to worry about downplaying impacts as much because once it's been approved, NEPA is written as long as you've disclosed the impact. NEPA doesn't say you can or can't do something as long as you've disclosed the impact. And the the kind of legal threshold historically, uh, if you look at case law to for a court to stop a project that's gone through an EIS, it has to be something that's just they've completely missed something or they've overlooked something that that they needed to disclose and the the corrective action, if the court agrees, is almost never to cancel the project. It is the EIS is on hold or it's only portion of it is approved until you actually go back and do these environmental reviews. Um, mm-hmm. In this case, why it's interesting is that the corrective action, if a court were to rule that it was inadequate, is they could say, well, you could redo our mitigations, but the the courts have leaned towards if you can't do it if you can't do it under an EA obviously or like easily or you know in, in a very clear manner just go and do an EIS and 
I don't think anyone in NASA or the FAA or obviously the space community is going to love the idea of after all this, they would have to go back and do a new EIS. But from a legal standpoint, it's actually the, the, the courts based on previous case law are going to, you know, if we're going just pretending that there's no such thing as politics in these decisions and no other agencies can pressure, you know, the, the, the different uh, competing parties that, that the courts would just say, well, just go to your EIS, like just go comply with NEPA. And so given all that and kind of in context of, of that decision, the ultimate consequence, if truly found in their favor, kind of overwhelmingly would be to go back to and do an EIS, which would be devastating for the Artemis program. Um, and there would be a lot of very angry people, um, including a certain prickly billionaire who is not shy about sharing his opinion on things that don't go his way. Yeah, well, it, there's, there's no doubt that it would have a significant effect on the existence or well-being of SpaceX as a company. Yes. And, but, and I, I want to emphasize this, NEPA is specifically says, we actually don't care about the, the, your NEPA decisions are, it is very clear. And I don't know what kind of judge you'd have to do where they wouldn't make that analysis. It says you don't, you're not actually allowed. The economic portion is actually not allowed to play a factor in the ruling. Well, and as, as I recall, uh, another, another reason that SpaceX gave for wanting to be included as a defendant was that the FAA would not sufficiently represent their interests. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into that. Um, before we get into the kind of the, I think the strategy you might take if you were perhaps the nonprofit consortium suing, suing, because I think that's, I think that's something I've had some time to research on and talk to people. I think I've got, I don't want to claim to be a singular expert, but I think I have kind of a thematic understanding of why, you know, what their tactics might be. But given, given the, the, the economic underpinnings of the court not being able to consider it, and by considerate, you mean the economic impact on SpaceX, correct? Yes. Um, SpaceX obviously has an interest in it um, for obvious reasons. And so, again, because you would always sue the agency because they're the ones responsible for compliance with NEPA, um, it's not uncommon. In fact, it's probably more common than not for a, a if especially if there's a single corporate you know, beneficiary of a NEPA approval, they will often petition to be included as a defendant because they have a stake in the outcome. Um, and so they, so SpaceX filing to be included is not an unusual action. Um, I didn't realize at the, at the time that it was issued that they use a little bit more aggressive language than maybe other litigants would do. And so DOJ, who's actually handling this. So this is, FAA is a lawyer's consulting, but the DOJ is the one that does the litigation in courts. And um, they took offense to a certain provision that SpaceX used where SpaceX said our, our interest would not be represented. And FAA said, Hey, you know, you can, you can claim to be in because it's your, your own interest and we have no problem with you coming in on the lawsuit, but don't you dare claim that we're not, we're not advocating for you because no agency is going to want to give up that power. And then DOJ is also involved and DOJ doesn't want that to become precedent for other NEPA cases. They argue and other similar laws uh, outside of NEPA. So they don't want court precedent to say, to say like, Oh, we're okay with litigants saying you, you're, you're actually like 
they because because FAA is the sponsor of NEPA, and so they they very clearly and uh, uh, brusquely made made that made that um, clear through the court filing that they were okay with it. They just didn't like the um, kind of that that dependency relationship. They're like, we don't have a problem with it, and so it's so funny that 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 document circulated, and I had like. 10 people be like, Oh, do you see this? They're really mad at, at SpaceX. I'm like, no, this is just, this is, um, if you're really into like legal theory and how yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting, I think from a legal standpoint, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't read anything particularly because agencies don't like, like any other person or organization, they don't like making a decision and having someone say, you don't have that authority to do it. So they just wanted to make the basis for the decision clear. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that I, I wanted to sort that out um, as much as I love writing about drama that involves SpaceX and talking about it. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't read too much into that. Um, that is a kind of a jurisdictional, it's a squabble over jurisdictions. Yeah. Any thoughts or conjecture about how, Two sides will approach the prosecuting of the case. Any educated guesses you'd like to make about strategies from either side? Yeah. So I think I was kind of curious to see if FAA may preemptively say, okay, we need to go back and modify a few things. But I think some of it's uh, bureaucratic inertia and some of it's maybe a little bit stubbornness. Um, they had no desire to do that. They said, let's, we're standing by our NEPA process. We don't want, we're not going to be pushed around, um, which is, you know, part human nature and part how government agencies work. And so that, that, that whole portion of it is, you know, that's pretty standard, but because as I brought up earlier, there's some pretty obvious, really good points in the lawsuit where they're like, you did not predict this would happen. And we have proof that that happened. An actual outcome, for example, right? The, the extent of the debris field from Boulder up into dust was much larger than they had predicted. And so you can point to that and say, this proves that didn't work. Now, a lot of people have this idea, and this is the other part that frustrates me, is that, look, I worked in industry and you deal with annoying regulators that don't understand your process. You deal with people who are squeaking wheels, who are just NIMBYs that just want you to stop your project. And it's very frustrating. And I've dealt with it before. It is, it is, if you're, if you're invested in a project, it's incredibly annoying when people do that kind of stuff. And so, so I get it. I really truly do. And so I don't think, I think you've got your, your kind of local advocates who absolutely they're, they don't want that to exist. Um, and I understand that too. That's nimbyism is a thing. Everyone experiences it. It, it. People, certain people don't like change in their area. Sometimes it's very valid. Sometimes it's less valid, but that's not uncommon. I think if you're these, some of these large organizations and I don't want to speak for them, you don't want much like the DOJ and the FAA doesn't want court precedents and agency decisions to set precedents for things that you can litigate and, and put holds on projects. Some of these large organizations, the more sophisticated ones that file a lot of lawsuits, um, Defenders of Wildlife is leading the case. They have a um, very capable counsel. They do a lot of litigation and they have a strategy. They, I think in an ideal world, they want, you know, in an ideal world, they want SpaceX to do everything perfectly, or maybe they, maybe they don't want them to be there. I can't speak for them, but I think they have a bit of a macro strategy 
that is they they want to set precedent for other cases so that if there is this big space boom and people people see that Boca Chica, let's say it works, they don't want it to become standard practice for FAA to become, you know, kind of this complacent. And so their goals, much as uh, FAA and SpaceX are on the same side of litigation, their goals aren't going to line up perfectly. And and likewise, these, all these different activist groups, they're going to have different priorities and different ideal outcomes. And so I think there's an idea you go in and you sue them and you say that this is if you're the nonprofit consortium and you you're say the, you're the plaintiffs, you're the plaintiffs. Yep. Yep. And you say, we've got this great evidence that we think we can push you to an EIS. You don't want to deal with discovery. You don't want to deal with a PR from this. Um, you know, they kind of fire their opening salvos and they hope that they can, you know, you know, draw a good judge and get a few, um, you know, wins in, in, in the court or in the press. And then they hope that FAA comes back to the bargaining table and basically just puts additional mitigations. Um, and it's not even necessarily the mitigations. I think my frustration with a lot of the stuff in Boca Chica is that the mitigations are really, they're squishy. It's really hard to determine if FAA is really doing them. There's no great public disclosure method for it. Um, besides things like, you know, paying for, you know, the Jagger one die fund or whatever, 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 you know, those are easy to determine, but things like, you know, having a, one of the huge issues out there is that there's a huge disagreement that FAA and SpaceX are claiming they're closing the roads a lot less often than they are. I've seen the records and I've seen some of the timestamps of, of what, the county and what SpaceX and what FAA claims. And it, and I, I, I side with the plaintiffs. It seems like they're, that's a really good point. And so they may, what they may do is they may say, look, you're, you're sacrificing this much wildlife refuge. And so you need to offset it somewhere else. You need to have more monitoring. You need to have a actual, like, you know, a post incident, you know, uh, there, there was some talk that, you know, any birds that were killed after that launch because there was so much pandemonium, those were all eaten or, you know, swept away before they could get a good count. And so, the, so what you do is you go back and you say, no, we want to have something that's enforceable where there's a, maybe there's a third party auditor that audits the, um, beach closures or there's a better way to monitor the, the health of the, of the reserve. And if certain goals aren't met, not because, because the way it's written is that like, you know, we shall maintain this, but what they would, what they would do is in an ideal world, maybe for these, these, um, you know, the plaintiffs who realize they're not going to stop this project. If, if the powers that be want it to happen, that a win for them may be to have something where they write a condition that's easily enforceable, that's easily observed by the public. And if they don't meet that criteria, they've got a assigned document that was approved by a judge and they go and say, you said you were going to do this when we settled this case and you did not, and you'd be able to get an immediate injunction against them. That's the kind of, that would be the win. I think that would be maybe probably most attainable to both sides. Um, but again, there are certain parties in the plaintiff uh, consortium that don't want it to exist anymore. So. I see. So got, got any prediction on how much longer the lawsuit will take to get resolved. I know it began on May 1st and here we are June 21st. So that's almost two months into the lawsuit. And so far things really haven't even hardly gotten started yet. Hey, let me, 
Larry, if I, can, if I can just interject something really fast, too, and that was one of my follow-ups with reference to uh, to the timeline. The other thing, too, as I'll mention, is that during one of the uh, uh, NASA Ad- Advisory Council meetings uh, for uh, for human spaceflight, uh, Wayne Hale brought up a, a point, and f- this audience knows who Wayne Hale is. Wayne is a, a former uh, NASA associate administrator. He came through the, the mission control ranks and was a flight flight director and uh, and ultimately ended up being the uh, the shuttle program manager. Uh, he is now a retired consultant, but he works with the NASA Advisory Council um, and leads the uh, the human uh, the human spaceflight division on that. But um, anyway, he expressed concern over the length of this and because of the lander that SpaceX is trying to build. And of course, this booster is supposed to bring this lander up for uh, for the Artemis three uh, uh, landing attempt. Jim Free, the associate administrator of NASA, also said the same thing. He is concerned about the progress of this thing as well. So to, to bring it around to, to, to Larry's question again, how long are we looking at? Because NASA wants to land on the moon by what is, what, what is it, Larry? About 2026, I believe the directive is. I don't know if we're going to make that, but this is going to complicate things. Yeah. No, that, and that's, that's a really great observation. And I, I, I don't think that they're going, I think you would have seen them request a immediate injunction, um, the plaintiffs here, and they did not. So basically the, the longer the court case goes on, FAA is the Fonzie and the, and the EA are in force. They're legally valid, um, until the court says otherwise. Um, so any, any delays works out for SpaceX and for NASA in, in the long term. But I think this is a really interesting, observation is that people are like, well, they have to launch from Boca Chica. And, and I understand that justification, but really they had to significantly pare down, um, in order to kind of even make it even not laughable on its face, the, the EA approval. I mean, they're, they're, I believe they're only allowed to launch, you know, five times a year when they're in production. From my understanding, uh, SpaceX's portion of the Artemis launch, you're going to have to have, you know, 15 support flights. And this is after the test launch, you know, just to be able to have enough fuel to be able to do your liquid transfers. Is is that, that's right. Right. And that is not even tested yet. They have not gone ahead and tested uh, uh, cryo uh, refueling yet. Um, I mean, there's only one company out there that can do refueling uh, right now here in the States anyway, and that's Northrop Grumman. Um, But that's, and it's not on that level. They refuel satellites. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, I, this is really throwing a monkey wrench and in, in, into NASA's plans. My question really is how, what would the long-term impact be, um, to this lawsuit if SpaceX is grounded for the, the term of the long suit, of, of the lawsuit? Yeah. And I think that's, I, I mean, like I would be, I'd be out completely out of my depths, you know, trying to, trying to determine how, uh, space flight is space flight, you know, development is iterated. And then even more so with SpaceX, who is notorious for moving fast. And, and so I, I guess my, my big point though, is that like, even with Boca Chica, even if you say that the lawsuit's going to fail, like you're going to have to find another launch site anyway. And so you're going to, you're going to have to go from the Cape. And so there's all sorts of approvals. They're not going to, 
like, I mean, they got a win, they got a win and that they got an approval and FAA was able to, you know, um, say, well, this at least passes enough that we don't have to like, you know, hate ourselves entirely for, for signing off on this, but you're not going to be able to just ratchet that up to 15 launches a year from Boca Chica. That's going to be a whole other legal fight if they decide to do that. So you're going to have to find another spot anyway. Gene was Gene. Was there any, any talk about, uh, about Starship being launched from the Cape? There is a Starship tower adjacent to launch complex 39A. However, I'm sure after um, what occurred at uh, at Boca Chica, I think I, I'm sure this is just between us, us guys here and our listeners. But I, I'm sure there might have been backroom talks at NASA going, I don't think we want that thing anywhere near launch camp complex 39A. Right. And but that's and I think that I, I Larry, I know you and I talked on the phone before this, and I think that's really interesting. That for me, that's actually the most interesting issue because that actually begs kind of a core question about why why does environmental law exist? And right, you've got a lawsuit coming, and I don't I don't know how discovery works in these civil cases versus, you know, especially with with NEPA, but if there's communications um, that's either written down or someone would have be, be forced to testify and you proceeded with this trial and you got someone from NASA to admit, oh, yeah, we, we, we're not going to let them launch from the Cape because it's too much of an explosion risk. And you say, well, that wasn't really disclosed that well in Boca Chica. And like, why are you saying that our launch facilities are expendable, but this, you know, um, you know, this, this natural resource that is owned by Department of Interior, that's owned by Texas State uh, Parks and Wildlife, and then that's also owned by Fish and Wildlife. Why is that refuge land expendable? You can't just use dollars because, again, environmental law is generally not supposed to just like especially NEPA is not supposed to say like, we're, well, it, we can't lose this NASA building. You say, well, if you didn't disclose the stuff, the, the consequences right in Boca, I would not want that. I feel like I've heard enough whispers and talked to a few people that have kind of been privy to, you know, the, the outskirts of these discussions. I wouldn't want to have like this, this prolonged, you know, discovery period. We were coming out and NASA saying, well, you know, we know it's going to blow up and it's really unsafe. And that's why we're sticking it in, you know, this, this critical wildlife habitat. That's not a great look. And so I think that's really interesting. But my point is, is from the legal standpoint, I think. They've said they're going to let the court play out as is. They, they're not pushing for a immediate injunction. And so given how long these t- cases take to proceed, you're not going to see hearings for, you know, maybe until the fall. And so we know how fast SpaceX moves, right? You know, they blew up the pad and Musk, you know, was like, well, we're launching in, in, in four weeks or whatever he said. And, and, you know, everyone rolled their eyes, but you know, they certainly want to move fast. And so, for me, I think this is really the core question. How, as a regulator, do you, like, where do you draw the line? And I find that super fascinating, especially with the FAA, because they have recent history in, you know, the, the 737 MAX program. They had lots of indications there were problems and they waited too long. And so a someone from FAA got pulled in front of Congress and they got grilled because they're like, well, how did you not see this? How did you not predict it? How, how were these obvious warning signs missed? I find that really interesting because I think everyone can agree the FAA who has, you know, the ability to launch, to issue and revoke launch licenses at will 
they're not going to be letting SpaceX launch from a reconstructed tower like that. I think that's pretty obvious. I've talked it at pretty, pretty, um, extent, uh, extended length in, in my publications and then in some podcast interviews we've done, um, one with the Planetary Society last month. Um, you're, you're not going to be able to dig out a trench and put in a full deluge system in there without dealing with other environmental issues. Their, their plot of land is much too small to support it. Um, the, the permitting alone for that would be several years. So they're not going to be able, to kind of put a traditional um, mitigation system. So if they're not going to be able to launch on their milk stool, um, you know, their orbital pad over a flat piece of concrete, and they're not going to be able to build a traditional deluge system, what you're looking at, and this is why Musk and SpaceX have been, you know, talking about this, you know, sandwich plate of, you know, uh, uh, steel with holes in it that has water flowing through it. My question is, Knowing that this lawsuit probably isn't really going to have any, you know, uh, uh, consequences for months or maybe even a year or more that the FAA's authorization is still in effect, that if you're FAA and you're the person signing off on that, um, where is your risk level at? Are you going to let SpaceX launch off the orbital launch pad over naked concrete? I, I would like to think that that's not going to happen again. I think that's pretty clear they won't be allowed to. And so are, are, are you going, the question is then, are you going to allow an experimental technique that's never really been done before? Are, is that something you're comfortable with? Because if it goes awry in a way that we could, or maybe can't predict, what are the consequences for you as that administrator? Do you want to be the person that has to go in front of Congress and explain why you authorize this, you know, wacky idea that, that, that Musk, Musk and SpaceX proposed to be able to, you know, fast track another launch. Um, and one example I gave, and, and I don't, I want to be really careful about acoustics and, 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 you know, sound attenuation. I, I know enough to be dangerous, but I'm not an expert. Um, is if you think about concrete, um, it, you've got a percussive, um, you know, a, a bounce back, an echo effect off of a material. I, I the, the example I've kind of run through in my head is if you go to an empty building and it's made of cinder blocks, a big empty warehouse, it's made of sim, cinder blocks, the walls and, and ceiling are, are cinder blocks. And you go in there and you yell, hello, you're going to have some echo, um, certainly. But if you go into a big empty, empty building that's made of, um, steel, and you go and you say, you know, hello, you're going to hear hello, 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 hello. And so the reason I bring that up is that the impacts on the engine itself that I'd be really curious to know is they've got some water in there, but you're going to certainly have more percussive blowbacks. Are you going to launch? Are you going to, are you going to fire those Raptor engines off and have a giant percussive bounce back and just rip the, 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 the vessel to shreds immediately? I don't know, but I think it's an interesting question to ask. And if I were FAA, I would be consulting very heavily with my experts at NASA and making sure that SpaceX isn't just saying, well, we'll wing it or we think it'll work. You know what I mean? Cause that's, that's the point at which you're, if you're a regulator in particular and you're, you're in charge of a government department, you are making a lot less money than kind of an equivalent position in private industry. And it's a great job and it, it gives you, you know, sense of satisfaction. I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of government work, but you don't want to get called in Congress. Like that's the point at which you would say you can't do it because I'm not, I'm not putting our agency at risk. And so I, for me, that's actually the real, like I, the lawsuit's interesting. I love the law, but I really, at the end of the day, it's like, where 
where is that comfort line for the regulator and how much do they let a company like SpaceX, you know, push the envelope to the point where that even they're like, well, I don't want to deal with the consequences of it. For me, that's the interesting question. Yeah. And the other thing too, I'll, I'll observe if, if Eric, if I'm not mistaken, the sound that was recorded at launch was a heck of a lot louder and the decibel readings were a lot higher too than expected. If, I, if I'm correct on that. And it also makes me wonder what happened in the wildlife, in the wildlife refuge to all the birds back there, because birds are really sensitive to sound. I mean, I know that through, through my own, I mean, I know that through my own lovebirds. Yep. yep. Um, no, that's, um, so just to be clear. So I did write about this. Um, I, I, I want to be clear like I, this, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I, I don't want, I'm not going to use this as like, I'm not going to publish a paper on it, but, um, some of the, uh, observations you got from basically calibrated decibel meters, um, and, and decibels are, um, a raw measure of sound, but most every, basically every meter on the market and every single, um, uh, uh, NASA sound study, industrial sound study is going to be, um, baseline to human hearing, um, the frequency range, um, that's DBA. Um, and so the DBA readings they got during one of the, um, static fire launches was much above what it was projected in the studies. My understanding is that the actual launch impacts on the day of Starship, uh, launch were, um, within range ish. Um, but we also have to keep in mind that they, they were not firing all those engines at full thrust and several of them weren't working. And then also things like humidity over, you know, overcast, uh, uh, temperature does affect attenuation. Um, so, so I, I don't know what the exact impacts are, but yeah, I think if you actually go back and look at some of the, uh, wildlife studies, they're like, we don't actually have great we don't have great data on, on avian species and like what point their, you know, little, little bird eardrums get blown out because they're, the DBA is referenced to human hearing and, you know, the, the, the surface tension in an ear, in a bird's eardrum and how their entire skull is set up is, is gonna, they're, they're going to have probably a slightly different frequency range where they're going to experience a lot of pain and or, and or die and lose their sense of coordination. So that's one of those things that like when we talk about the lawsuit settlement, it's like, well, how, how do we even know? We are basically just like, well, we've got this endangered species that this is a huge important range for them. Like, is it impacting them in ways we don't know? And that's not really kind of accounted for in some of these studies. And so I think that's interesting, but I think the sound thing is dependent on the launch and you know, you'd have to have multiple launches before you say like, oh, it was across the board, just terrible. I think the study was invalid because they used wrong input parameters, but that's neither here nor there. So I, I think, yeah, I think that's, that, that's another thing that is going to become an issue if they continue to launch because people, um, people don't like super noisy things around, you know, a, a time or two a year is fine, but, and people will laugh at this. And I, I, I hate when people do is that there are people with PTSD, right? There are people, you see it yeah. with people with PTSD who the 4th of July and New Year's is a nightmare for them because they have to deal with fireworks. And if you're, you know, you, if you've got, you can count how many veterans that are in South Padre Island and Brownsville. And like you say, well, that's like, I, I don't want to get like, you know, we have to worry about like every single, you know, hair on everyone's head, but that's, that's an impact where like you start to degrade someone's quality of life. If you're like, well, we're going to launch 20 times a year. You can't do that because you've basically ruined someone's home for like a good amount of people. 
So I think that's kind yeah. of those impacts that start yeah. to, you know, spread out where people don't really think about it. They think about the cool rocket launches and they don't think about yeah. all these externalities kind of spider web out from the, from, from the initial just wow factor. If, especially if you're like a visiting tourist to see a cool rocket launch. Right. I'm, I'm just going to throw two things out there, you know, just, just as a, as, as my, my closing thing, two things. One, uh, I just sat through a uh, event, I guess last week, the Secure World Foundation put on uh, on space sustainability, and it was a lot more than just space debris. And we'll we'll talk about that on on another program. But we're talking about you know sustainability here on the ground, and and I think that's ultimately really really what we're trying to do here. We don't want to prevent people from doing what they want to do, which is either build a a, a launch vehicle that's going to propel a, a a lander to the moon. We we're not trying to stop that. We just want it done in a in a responsible manner. And there are other ways around to do that. So we're 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 talking about space sustainability, not only space sustainability up there, but also down here. And I know SpaceX likes to move fast, but how fast is really fast? I mean, how how fast do you really want to move? And perhaps sometimes we're moving too fast. And um, in that trample things get uh things get messed up and i'll i'll point out apollo one as one of my uh my my uh, uh, apollo one as as exhibit a in that yeah hey um eric one more question before we go well uh, maybe more than one we'll see <laughs> if you were a, a betting man and i'm betting you are can you give me your percentages and your odds on how the lawsuit will turn out Will it be a big win for the plaintiffs and SpaceX has to go off and do a full-blown EIS? Or will it be a compromise decision where there may be some additional mitigations imposed? Or will the decision be for the defendants? No change, business as usual, let's get this show on the road type stuff. So give us your percentages. Sure. Um, uh, it's uh, being put a little bit on the spot, but I, I like I like doing that because then you can uh... – you can judge me after the fact. Um, I guess in a, um, in a, in a neutral world where the facts were the facts and the law was the law, I'd give, um, plaintiffs a pretty decent shot at winning. Um, that being said, uh, NEPA cases in particular don't have an amazing track record of government agencies losing. Um, and, and part of that is political inertia. And a large part of it is that NEPA itself has been left up to, um, federal agencies to enforce. And in general, um, the Justice Department and, and, and also judges tend to uh, kind of by default, uh, assume that the government is acting in good, good faith. And so they, mm -hmm. they generally need very specific, um, and, and actionable, um, corrective action. So with all that said, in a neutral world, this would be a case that I think has some pretty strong merits given you know, some of the concrete outcomes that you can point at um, that have already occurred that are kind of outside of the scope of what was, you know, approved as a NEPA document. So given the fact that historically courts have sided more often with government and the fact that there is a certain political pressure um, that we can't just pretend like doesn't exist, there's not, you know, a backdoor or backroom conversations. Not that I'm, you know, accusing anyone of being you know, outwardly corrupt or anything, I, I think that, you know, you have to 
you know, kind of handicap these things on a, on a political basis. So, I, you know, my, my number is, you know, 60 to 70% chance that, you know, this case, when it's settled, um, will go entirely for the defendants. Um, and that FAA is, you know, kind of required to do nothing, um, wow. up to their discretion. Interesting. Oh, well, yeah. that's, that's not, that's not what I expected you to say. <laughs> but, no, no uh, I mean, like, I, I'm trying to be a little bit more realistic and kind of, yeah. yeah, paying more attention to the politics. Um, and I've actually, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not a litigator for it. So I've been doing a bunch of research on, on, you know, kind of outcomes in, in different NEPA, um, uh, legal cases. And so I, I just, you know, I, I think it's, it's in this case in particular, it's, it's, it's easier just to kind of default to, um, agency winning. Um, that, that being said, I do think, um, I do think there's a decent chance that there is, um, you know, that, that, that either, either there doesn't get to a final, um, decision in that, you know, maybe the FAA agrees to, you know, some, some additional, um, requirements as we discussed, um, or, or that it's, um, you know, there, there's some sort of compromise in, in the meantime, or that the judge, you know, in that case, um, rules some sort of, uh, corrective action that is not a, not redoing the whole EIS. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, so I, that's- I that's the other 30 or 40%. Yep. Yep. So that's, <laughs> and that's my way of saying that, you know, just acknowledging the political reality, but it is a good case um, that, you know, this is, this is something that I, I think, I think kind of just more generally people have this, this idea that, you know, um, I've seen this in the discourse uh, in particular with this case is that they're just like, you know, these environmental groups are, are, you know, they'll just sue anyone. And, and that's not true. I mean, they don't sue on every single um, government action. They, right. they, they make sure that they feel like they have a good case. They have limited resources and there are a lot of government actions to sue on. So there's, you know, they, they um, cynically, they may, they may look at it as high profile and, you know, you could say I can get better fundraising from it, but I really do think, you know, having, having been through enough of the analyses and, and talking to a good amount of environmental lawyers who have lit- litigated stuff like this. Um, I, I think, I think there's, I think they, I think they've got, you know, they've thought this through and they, they think this is an important case legally that they have a chance of winning. Um, that's mm. I guess, how I would put it. Well, that's it. Listeners, you heard it here first <laughs> or, or, or maybe not, I guess time will tell. <laughs> time will tell. And uh, again, I think the discovery process, if, uh, you know, I think that that may dictate, you know, if I and I I don't know how the exact discovery rules work, but I think, you know, what what sort of materials that the FAA or possibly NASA would have to cough up, um, if as the case proceeds, as the court case proceeds, that 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 could also dictate, you know, maybe maybe someone's seeding ground. So I, I would certainly not be shocked to see some sort of middle ground um, negotiated outcome happen as well. So, uh, Eric, anything else you'd like our listeners to know that we haven't talked about yet? <laughs> I mean, there's there's tons of stuff. Um, one example I'll give, um, I, I pointed this out when we were prepping for the show, um, is there is a lot of there are a lot of people that have kind of approached me and said, well, you know, if 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 a lawsuit stops it, then Congress is just going to rubber stamp it. Um, I don't think it's that simple. It takes a lot of uh, bargaining power to make it happen. I wouldn't count on that. And there's been a lot of talk about permitting reform. Um, one of the examples I'll give, and this is actually one of SpaceX's saving grace, is that the kind of 
seminal species um, that we talk about, um, the piping clover and the red knot in particular, is that they are um, they're threatened and not endangered species, and critical habitat is counted differently um, in, in under the Endangered Species Act. You're kind of supposed to it's it's kind of it's kind of ghoulish, but you basically count how many animals you're going to kill. Um, which is a practical way to do it, but they've had to use, um, surrogates and they use, you know, how much rangeland is going to be impacted. Um, and so the Mountain Valley p- pipeline has been this, um, for people who don't know it, it's a, um, uh, natural gas pipeline, um, you know, through parts of Virginia, through pretty, pretty, uh, uh, rural mountainous, um, parts of Virginia. And there's been very successful pushback. And one of the, one of the pushbacks was on the Endangered Species Act, and the um, the species in question was um, in a very small. Uh, one of the advantages of the piping clover and red knot, even though the Boca Chica area is a, a big, big you know hot spot for them, is that their you know livable range is considered to be very large. But for this Mountain Valley pipeline, one of the huge holdups was a a a, a fish uh, called the candy darter. Um, it's a little striped uh, orange and black fish. It's about the size of your index finger, um, and it has a very it's a it's a critically endangered species. It's there's there's basically one place they live, and it's you know the 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 pipeline's going to go right through it. Um, and so they were actually able to hold this project off, you know, in a large part to this one species. Um, I, I think people tend to be more sympathetic to birds because they're, you know, relatable. Uh, for, I mean, for, I think for obvious reasons, for anyone who's you know experienced birds, they're 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 funny little guys. Um, they're, they're they're certainly more intelligent, and they've you know humans can kind of um empathize, or I guess they can kind of see themselves in birds more. But 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 the fish, because of the 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 rangeland was so specific to that area, that the Endangered Species Act really did a good job. Well it was effective, um, as a litigation technique to, you know, basically, you know, put this thing on hold. And so that was, um, in, in the, the most recent, uh, budget, uh, um, uh, resolution that, that was passed that they were able to push this one project off as, um, you know, something that said, you know, Congress is allowed to say, right. So Congress wrote the endangered species act. They can write legislation that says this project doesn't, we don't care. Um, and so there's this, there's this thought, and I think a little bit of it is just like wishful thinking where they're like, oh, well, like SpaceX can just do that because it's so important. And I think the thing I would point out to space people is that, um, for however important you think space is, um, it's, it's a priority for a lot of people. It's been a priority for Congress. But if you look at it in context with the rest of the budget that you're actually not that special. (laughs) And so, I mean, I, I, I feel bad saying that for people that are really passionate about space, but you have to be realistic about like what kind of political capital is someone going to waste. So I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't um, hang my hat on that. And then um, in general, I think, I think, you know, Gene, your point is really great in, in as space, as the space economy moves on and it's been basically moving towards this, this um, future where people are like, we're just going to be launching stuff all the time. Um, I'm a little bit more cynical whether that will actually work. Um, that's been a large part of why SpaceX has, you know, been able to raise so much money and has gotten these just crazy high valuation is that they're like, we're going to launch thousands of satellites every single year because then, you know, that's, that's like this whole idea of like what capitalism does. We have to grow every year. And so I think, I think the sustainability stuff is, is 
uh, intricately linked with, with, you know, how you do things, minimizing the impact on a per launch basis. But like, honestly, so much of it is going to be based on like literally how many launches you have because launches are, are subject to the laws of physics and you're going to be releasing a lot of heat and energy and you're going to be consuming a lot of resources, send that stuff up. So I think with the sustainability stuff, the, the people that are space policy people, you shouldn't necessarily root for just like this environmental, you know, uh, nuisance lawsuit. However you look at it in Boca Chica, just go away because, you know, at some point, if people see those externalities and they become fed up with it, then that's when real serious regulation happens and you don't want to be on the other end of that. So, so sustainability happens in, in a lot of different ways, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the other thing too, and it just occurred to me as 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 you were talking, Eric. You mentioned the piping plover and a lot of other endangered species. Uh, the piping plover also nests at Chincoteague, Virginia, right across the way, almost you know eight miles away from that, is Wallops Island, where. They launch sounding rockets on a regular basis. It's the only uh, launch facility that NASA owns fully, okay? The Antares launch vehicle launches out of there. That's that's um, currently north of Grumman's launch vehicle that launches the Cygnus spacecraft up to the International Space Station to carry logistics and food and whatever for the astronauts. Also... Uh, I, you know, Rocket Lab, one of the new uh, space companies that are launching small satellites, they are launching Electron out of uh, out of Wallops Island now, and they are also going to be launching their other follow up rocket to that Neutron. Yet they're living in peaceful coexistence with, you know, with Shinkatique. Why is it that? When SpaceX comes in, they can't do that over at Boca Chica. Yeah, I mean that I I would point to a, a cultural issue that there's this is and this is a thing where where people are like you, you know so and so focuses on Musk too much, but I think if you look at all of his companies, it's been uh, a big disdain for regulations across the board. Um, and so I, I think some of that is that they've been hesitant to take any conditions on, and they're really good at. You know, uh, uh, calling in favors and bullying, you know, regulators, but okay, we'll just sign off on it. That's been my kind of observation. But I, in fairness, I think, I think it's more difficult because if we think about, um, if we think about like harm to the environment as like a, a, a dosage thing, right? Like you'd, it, you'd rather, you'd rather take, um, you know, let's say the amount of, uh, of radiation your body would take on if you were to step into Chernobyl, you know, two months after, after the incident happened for five minutes, um, versus taking that same amount of net dosage over the course of a year, for example, um, you know, the impacts on your body aren't going to be the same because you've taken the same number of net rads. You, it's, it's toxicity, um, as a kind of metaphor is a function of, of strength and time. And it's not just like the total dosage over time. And so I think that's maybe a good metaphor is that these, these launches are so powerful and SpaceX's property is so close to public lands and, and civilization that in SpaceX's fairness, to the extent where we say, well, they had the launch from there, like that's kind of unavoidable because of the nature of what they're launching. I think that's important too. Um, 
but but to be clear, like um, some of these other space spaces, they've got really good mitigation systems in place. And I think if you're the um, plaintiffs, you you would hope that you know Boca Chica, if they're going to launch, is going to have better, you know, more granular and specific mechanisms for protecting animals instead of just saying we'll just like you know, try to do the right thing most of the time. Um, uh, you you you're still in a situation where. And this is, I'm glad you again brought up the piping plover because I did bring this up before is that for other species, um, where you have, um, and this is, this works better for mammals, but it does work with large birds as well. You can actually do like a, a count of number of birds. And that's like, you can prove this, this project that, you know, they, the, the, the fish and wildlife service, uh, approved this, um, envir- uh, sorry, uh, endangered species act study that says we'll only kill five birds a year. And you can go and look at baselines and say, Oh yeah, you've only killed five birds per year. My concern with how fish and wildlife service and how they've kind of approached these kind of, um, the, the habitats for these threatened species is that the habitats are so large. They're like, well, we're only taking away, you know, 2% of this, this large, this large, you know, South Texas coast, you know, uh, uh, habitat. It's like, it's nothing. They'll just move to a different portion of it. But I, I think the impacts aren't linear. And so you may see no impacts. And then all of a sudden just, you have like, um, I'm not, I'm not a rangeland, uh, you know, ecologist, or I'm not like a, you know, a, a bird expert, but that's that my impression is that you have the, the population dynamics are a lot more, uh, intricate and nuanced. And so I think there's some real concern with ecology people that you're, using not a great surrogate for what it is. And so with all that said, um, if, if that launch facility in Virginia is, you know, is it maybe impacting rangeland where they just don't have a good way to measure it. And so, um, you know, part of, part of looking at what an impact is over time is studying the actual data. And it's, it's with some of these species and some of these impacts, it's hard to get like a, a, a raw number and you're using something else as a surrogate. So that, that's what I would point out. And then, um, and part of that is defense of just the fact that, you know, the Starship is a very large rocket. Yeah. I mean, to me, if I were a bird looking at that thing, there'd be nowhere to run, nowhere to hide personally. So you could go ahead and say, yeah, we'll only cut off 2%. Well, you know, there, there's nowhere for the little guys to run, basically. Right, right, right. And I mean, there's some of the language in there. And I think, um, I, I honestly, I think everyone, I think, um, uh, the, 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 the main attorney, um, who I having seen his writing before, I believe he wrote uh, a significant portion of the lawsuit. Um, there's some really good points in there. Um, I think one of the great ones was like, you know, if you, if you look at how it's read, they're like, well, we think the birds will like, they'll see activity and they'll be like startled. Um, and they'll just like kind of go away. And so we like kind of minimize it. And that's hard to, you know, for me, it doesn't sound right, but I think one of the really good examples that um, the lawsuit made is that they're like the the NEPA document says where practical and in the right seasons will you know only run lights when necessary, and the lawsuit's like you he's like yo you guys have been running these lights twenty four seven since the second you started up before you even had approval, and so for that to be a mitigate that's not a mitigation because you're saying well we'll do it when it's convenient for us, but then that's not really, that's what I'm kind of talking about the enforceability stuff. Right. And so there's some really good observations in there. And if you go in with an open mind, that, like, well, that's it's kind of weird. You say that's a mitigation. It's not good. And so I think those are interesting things to discuss that, that may have implications that um, will affect the site. Um, but, but I don't, 
I think I think there's a lot more going on than than either Boca Chica, as we talked about, with the total number of launches, um, where the Starship program is at, especially the lander, the the, the fueling, um, and then where you know Cape, you know where the Cape's at. You know, do we need more spaceports, and should we start? We should start planning them now instead of having you know a Boca Chica every five years. We're like, wow, we need a new launch site, and so we'll just pick this place because the local politicians, you know, paid us money, and they're not going to get in the way. And I, I don't think that's the right way to do things. I think, I think gutting regulations isn't the right way to do. You can make them better and make them more efficient, but you want to start planning these projects because if you talk about space sustainability, if you talk about the future of space flight if we're going to be launching off all these facilities, we need, we can't just rely on the Cape. And so you should be planning for these facilities now and talking with the community and, you know, figuring out what the requirements are instead of just saying, well, we're going to move here and we'll just push this process through. I think that's, that's what frustrated me a lot about some of the SpaceX stuff. Hey, Eric, I think what we're going to do is um, it's so you're on Substack, right? If anybody wants to go ahead and take a look at your uh, your writing and and all that good stuff. Yep. Um, I uh, I have a domain on Substack. Um, I also have my own custom domain. But yeah, if you just go to um, either ESGHound.com. I'm sorry, it's blog.ESGHound.com or ESGHound.substack.com. Um, I'm trying to branch out more on social networks. I actually do have a LinkedIn account, but most of my social network posting is still on Twitter. I can't get away from that site. It's so convenient. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a drug. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll also be including links to Eric's info in the show notes on TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Uh, many thanks to our listeners for being with us today. And thanks to Gene McCulka. Thanks, Gene. Oh, Larry, thank you so much. I, again, I was looking forward to this interview for, for quite some time when we were, we were talking about it. So, uh, really, really, I was really privileged to be here. Yeah. We've been, we've been talking about getting Eric on the, on the show for a long time and finally made it come to be. So our thanks also to Eric Resch for joining us today for some very interesting conversation. Thank you. And yeah, thank you, Larry. And thank you, Gene. And I, uh, always remind people that, uh, Hate mail, love mail, any questions? I'm really good about responding to email. Um, so my email's uh, on my social media profiles. So shoot me an email. We'll chat. I will. Uh, um, I will take your. I will take your hate mail and your love mail alike. And I, I, I love and cherish every single message you sent to me. Yep. So like what Dale uh, Earnhardt said, <laughs> you know, they they're either applauding or booing, but they're doing something. <laughs> so very good. No, no, thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Excellent. And uh, everyone, I hope the rest of your day is great. And uh, we'll see you next time. 